Good morning. Well, as many of you know, I actually love going to India. Um, you should try to get there at least one time a year because we have this beautiful partnership with those who are on the ground there. But I go to India not just because, um, just for mission's sake alone, but there's an amazing history. The people there are just such, um, they have such incredible spiritual hunger. I've never, you know, you can say Asians in general do have this desire to know God in such a way. It just really, it, it pulls everything out of them. But uh, in, in India, it, it's very easy to see, not only in contemporary settings, but just through uh, encountering um, the city and encountering the peoples. Well, uh, I try to travel as well and just to try to see what's around. And last time I had a chance to go to this place called uh, the Jain Temple called at Ranakpur. And this temple, there we go, uh, was made in the 15th century. And if you've ever, like from here, it's like, oh, that's a nice little, nice little building. It's all hand carved out of stone, okay? And it's not just hand carved, it is like ridiculously hand carved. So um, there's no audio on this, but if you, if you, I took a little walk around, there's 1,444 pillars, and not one of them is alike hand-carved. There's 80 domes, the most intricate 80 domes that you can imagine. Think about it. How do you not only in the 16th, 15th century carve it out, but put this heavy thing up there? Um, it is just ridiculous of what they, the amount of energy and time and devotion. And this is a Jain temple. And the Jain temple and Jain religion uh, is actually uh, not so much that it's talking about like a worshiping of a god, it's a respect for having uh, respect for everything created. No violence is their kind of their primary thing. They even put masks so that they don't disturb the insects around them with the air that they're breathing out. This is how, this is how kind of uh, focused they are and how devoted they are. This is the Jane, Jane Temple. So I went in there and I was just kind of, kind of ashamed. It's like, Christians, we don't put this kind of energy into our worship. You know, not that this is actually the way that we should be doing it, carving out stone for 50 years and this kind of beautiful kind of a way. But um, the f interesting part was I ran into this god, Ganesh, and I see him everywhere. He is like probably one of the more you know, common favorite gods in India. I'm like, what is Ganesh doing here? So I asked the, the, the priest, the, the, he's more of a monk who, who's, who's there, and he's 13th generation of, of a monk. And, and he goes, goes through all the history, but he doesn't answer my question. If you Jains, Worship, don't worship a god, but about nonviolence, right? What is he doing here? And I found it very interesting that, yeah, that's the case. Uh, Ganesh found his way inside a Jain temple, and it's pretty common. I, I reflected on this, and I, I was thinking about how, wow, everywhere we go, especially in India, there's signs of idolatry, okay? Every home has some symbol. Every, every block has a little shrine. Uh, and a temple, um, and, and in many ways, it's an overt description of how hungry and spiritually hungry people of India are. Um, but even in a place like this temple, where it's not supposed to be a god, they have a god there where they worship. It's very easy to go to a place like India and kind of point out, because it's so overt. How can you trust in this image? as a representation, as, as you're in the temple and doing your things, that this has spiritual import and power. Um, some of the stories actually of Ganesh's birthing is actually really freaky, it's kind of gross. But like there's this incredible attraction and desire for the help of these gods. 
And it's very easy for Westerners, including myself, to go look over there and, and say, oh, you superstitious people, oh, you, you fools. You know, something created is not going to save you. It's not going to help you. This is, a, this is not a living God. The interesting part is, Westerners might be able to criticize the overt expression of idolatry in these ancient religions, right? even that we see in the Old Testament. But we are sometimes woefully clueless to the rampant idolatry happening in our own lives. Because it's not just about an external expression of, oh, this thing that's been made that's by human hands, that somehow you look to and you worship and you trust and it's going to help you. In fact, we do this, you know, maybe not as, as, as overtly as, as uh, other religions do, or other, other cultures do, but we do this in our own hearts. Today, as we're continuing on in the Gospel and Life series, we're, we're emphasizing, once again, what is going down in the level of our heart? Because that is the driver for our behavior. That's the driver for our relationships. That's the driver for how we take care of and help the world. If there is not a transformed heart with God, then all of our work in the world is actually empty. It is disconnected with God. And the way that the gospel is supposed to work, the way we get to live out the gospel in life, is the gospel takes root in our hearts. It changes us from the inside out. And then when we approach other people from this place of being connected so richly with God, guess what? Now we can transform the world through him and with him. And so last week we talked about the heart, three different kinds of ways to live, a gospel way that's trusting in God versus um, an irreligious path making your own path versus a, a very slippery one, a religious path. It looks like you're trusting in God, but actually you're using your religion to actually seek God. Today, we're focusing on this term and this reality of idolatry. Tim Keller calls it the sin beneath the sin. That there is a reason why people make all of these external expressions with their own hands and then they worship. Because it's something of a heart move. It's a heart disease. Uh, that he's going to unpack, and we're going to unpack from the book of Romans today, that as we allow God to replace and bring us back to a place where he's at the center, then, um, yeah, our, our very way of engaging him, our very way of engaging our world is transformed. Well, he, we're being pulled into the book of Romans, and Romans actually is a very complex book. It's tough to parse through. There's a lot of different kinds of readings of Romans, but we're just going to try to go through along this one simple line of, why is, you know, what's, what's being told here? What is the sin beneath the sin? What is idolatry? Why should we pay such close attention to it? Well, uh, in the book of Romans, Paul starts off by saying, in verse 18, by saying, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And if you grew up in uh, some of the religious cultures that, like I grew up in, it's uh, a lot of hellfire and brimstone. It's like, God hates you if you don't repent. He's going to bring all kinds of destruction in the world. And anytime there's a, like a, there's like a, a, you know, a natural disaster in another country, not your own, oh, that's God judging them. There's a picture of God who is just really angry and who is kind of like testy. You don't want to mess with this God. Um, then there's another picture, that more recent, of a God who was so loving and so kind that he wouldn't harm a fly. He would wear a mask, not to disrupt any insects in his path. That's the two different versions. Well, we get a chance to see that, no, God is, has wrath stored up for those who've actually turned against him. Okay? 
He, he is actually is a righteous wrath against a wicked people who are exercising lives of wickedness. Okay? That's true. Okay? At the same time as God, who in his love will take upon all that wrath upon himself for the sake of the very people um, who, would, who would turn toward him afterwards. Well, we're seeing that the wrath of God is being revealed and Paul is actually saying it's being toward the godlessness and the wickedness. Some kind of activity of people that is so away from God that God actually has to correct. He has to bring and, and bring his, uh, uh, his wrath on. Well, um, this is something for us to take a step back and realize. What is godlessness? What is wickedness? Okay? And for us, to help, it helps us to understand it's actually the very opposite of what's called righteousness. Righteousness. Okay? So if somebody's righteous, they're living a morally pure life. That's how we understand. They have these absolute ethical demands, and they're living according to them. They're not, they're not cheating. They're not lying. They're not stealing from other people, and so on and so forth. They're being kind to others. But when the, when the gospel talks about righteousness, it actually goes deeper than that. It's kind of like we talked about last week. The very two verses before this, uh, verse before this, in verse 17, Paul says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed. God is being described as one who's righteous. And his righteousness is not just talking about his ethical and moral you know, purity. This righteousness actually is a relational term. Righteousness in general is a relational term. A righteousness that by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He's actually basically reminding us that righteousness, before it is a, I am right before God because I did everything right, I'm living a pure and I'm following his ways, it is a term describing a heart faithfulness, a heart connection okay, with God. When God says, I am righteous, there's places in the Old Testament where it's righteousness is translated loving kindness. Wait a minute. How is righteousness translated to loving kindness? Because God is righteous. He's faithful to, in covenant. He's faithful, he's loving, and he's kind. So our righteousness is not described simply by, did I do all these things right versus all these things bad? Am I I'm a better person than I'm a, I'm a bad person? I'm a good person more than a bad person? No, it's a relational term. Have you fulfilled your relational obligations? Have you turned with a right heart and then follow through with the right actions. And so the wrath of God is being poured out, not because people don't know him or acting wicked, it's because something has happened in the hearts of men that actually, and humanity, that's turned away from God. And he explains, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, has been clearly seen, being understood from what had been made so that people are without excuse. What is he saying? It was so visible, it has been. All the peoples of the earth have always looked to God. Okay? Different ideas about him, different ways of, of relating to him, but there is this complete awareness in humanity that there's a God to contend with. It says, for although they knew God, that includes not only peoples, but individuals, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him and because there was somehow something in the heart that disconnected with God, they knew he was to be worshipped and followed and trusted, but instead they went their own path, whether it's a religious path or an irreligious path. It says, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The very thinking about life, how to live, what is our purpose, how is, what does it mean to love, all of that gets futile, gets twisted, gets darkened. 
Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And this is getting to the heart of the sin beneath the sin. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. God in his beauty, God in his ways. What does it mean to be in right relationship with God? They took that, they had that, they had that option, they, and not just in the garden, but in our hearts too, and exchanged it for images, okay? To make look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles, okay? And because this exchange happened, God is not in the heart, instead they put something else in there. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. There's a, there's a, uh, a consequence in how they even lived and treated each other. This is at the heart of it, this exchange. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, okay? And worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is to be further praised. Idolatry is not just about this strange you know, worship of, 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 of a, of a man-made item, it's actually starting in the heart. Something has happened where the seat of the person in trust and in relationship, it's, it's, it's supposed to know God, love him, worship him, pursue him. Now he's been replaced. The creator himself, the glory of the immortal God has been changed and replaced with something that's created, something less, okay? Well, this is actually Paul's way of confirming to all those who are listening, especially the Jews, that the, the Gentiles, they don't deserve God. They've screwed up royally. You know, they're so idolatrous, these Gentiles. But you know what? If you look at the history of the Jews, they're just as bad. And they're worse. They receive the law, but they still, in their own hearts, by their breaking of the law, exercise idolatry. Okay? They saw the power of God bring them through ten plagues and uh, the Red Sea and, and supply them with manna and water. And, and they got to this mountain where they're called to worship, but after 40 days, Moses is not coming down, and they're freaking out. They want a God that they can see and touch and handle and manipulate. They make Aaron carve out this golden calf. And this golden calf was not just at this time. It was ground down, spit, they, 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 they made to, to drink it. It extended on later on. There's... Jeroboam's golden calf through the history of Israel continues on. It's actually kind of like, you look at them and you go, what's wrong with you? God has been so good. You, you saw 10 miracles. You saw the Red Sea split. You saw the Pharaoh's army, the most, like the, the superpower, be wiped out in front of your eyes. You saw him, water coming out of rock constantly. You saw all of this. How could you not trust him? How could you make a God and then Worship him in the way that all the other people worship. This is, by the way, a good reminder. Whenever you read the Bible and you get really livid, and you're like, how are you stupid? How, how dare you? How could you be so stupid? Watch out. Because actually, we're not that much different. We might not actually make it out of something physical, but we pursue false gods, golden calves, like crazy. Our culture does, and we do. Our career becomes so important that we'll burn our family, we'll burn our friendships, we'll burn our sense of integrity. Our family becomes so important that all, all everything else becomes, and we'll, and we'll bleed to ourselves, this is the way God would have it, right? Money, culture, art, okay? Power, approval of others becomes so important. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll allow others to walk all over us and others as well. 
fame, success, comfort even. Anything that somehow that we are turning to to give us a sense of security. This, because I have this, because I'm pursuing this, I feel secure or a sense of significance. Because I have this, I have fame, everybody knows me. Because I have success, I have money, I'm of importance. My life has purpose. I'm doing something. I, am, I have identity because of this. And if it's not God, that's an idol. Yeah. It's the sin beneath the sin. Yeah. It's not just the lying and the cheating and breaking of the Ten Commandments. That's just the sin. Underneath it, it actually is what's happening in our hearts. And we can turn anything into an idol. In fact, um, it was Calvin who described this saying that we are really good. Humans are really good at making idols. We'll make an idol out of anything. Okay? In, the, in the Hindu pantheon, it's 33 million gods and counting. Okay? That's a lot. I can't keep track of 33 million. Right? Well, in the human heart, uh, it's probably more. We can turn anything. Everybody has a different thing sometimes that we look to to give us a sense of security significance and it's not God. Well, uh, I'm going to spend a little time just talking about idolatry is at the cause of our breaking the law. Okay? This is Martin Luther. He says, All those who do not at all times trust God, being in a right relationship with God, a righteousness by faith, which is a trust word, and do not in all their works of sufferings, or works or sufferings, life and death, trust in his favor. So everything that you live, if you're not doing it out of trust, of his grace and good, uh, goodwill, but instead you begin to seek favor in other things or in the things themselves. Okay? Guess what? You've broken the first commandment. Okay? They do not keep this first commandment. And by definition, you're practicing idolatry. Yeah. He goes on to say, even if you were to do all the works of all the other commandments, and in addition, do all your religious work of prayers, fasting, obedience, patience, chastity, right? That's, that's, that's kind of a form of sexual faith, faithfulness. Innocence of the, all the saints combined. You, you are the most righteous looking person of all. Guess what? If the chief work, that's the stuff inside. The reason why you're doing all these things, okay? Whether Christ is, in, is, is, is there it's out, of, out of trust and out of obedience, out of faith. If the chief work is not present, without which all others are nothing but mere sham, show, and pretense. What he's saying is, all of the Ten Commandments are uh, unpacking of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. God is to be first in priority, first in loyalty, first in desire. That when another desire begins to break out and take control, guess what? Sooner or later, your love for Christ, your hunger for God, actually will begin to diminish. And you'll, you'll actually have a very difficult time seeing him. Now, this is the hard part. Desire and satisfying desire feels like life. Okay? Okay, if you're hungry and you're a foodie and you go to the best restaurants every single day, okay, it feels like life. Okay? I'm kind of a foodie. Not really. I'm a cheap foodie. But yeah, when I, eat, yeah, I went to Hawaii and I ate the, the most delicious food and I was like, oh, it feels like life. If you, if you love beautiful environments and you get to travel to the most gorgeous places in the world, if you love culture, right? If you, if you love this you know, man or woman and finally you're able to have a, a cons consummated relationship with them, it feels like life. These are all gifts of God. But once that, not only a feeling, but a desire overruns its bounds, 
It becomes inordinate, okay? No longer is it life. Now, that becomes Lord. That desire becomes something that controls you. It can happen slowly, but over time, no longer are you free to move after the things that are important, that are right, that are good. That desire begins to rule you. Rebecca Pippert says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power ends up being controlled by power. In order to get more power, they will step on others. They will destroy their own sense of integrity. They won't even recognize themselves over time. The person who seeks acceptance controlled by the people he or she wants to please, we do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. Whatever desire we give into to a point where now it's become an idol, it leaves us absolutely chained. It used to be where I looked at addicts and I would say, ah, how could they do that to themselves? They would take great lives. They have a house, they have, they have a great job, they have a wonderful family and community, and they have children. How could they allow themselves to go down this path? But if you've been paying attention, uh, the amount of deaths attributed to you know, opioid, opioid overdoses and addiction is, is ridiculous. It's not just happening in the rural areas. And you, know, you, can, you can track a lot of it. This is not just you know, junkies just dying. This, these are people who were fine. They were living these fruitful lives, got into an accident, and they were prescribed these you know, oxycodone and you know, these, uh, these, these opioids that took away their pain. And that feeling of comfort, that feeling of peace, that feeling of pain release was so sweet that once they were off those prescriptions, they didn't know how to live otherwise. Living without that feeling somehow was not living. And I, I don't look at those individuals as weak anymore. I don't look at them as like, how could you? I'm like, wow, this is, this is where, this is how our, this is how not just addiction, but idolatry works. Um, sooner or later, they move away from the, the prescribed pills because they get too expensive and their access gets a little too hard. And their addiction actually pulls them into the black market for heroin and, and fentanyl and so on kind of things. Before you know it, yeah. Um, people who were once doctors, law enforcement individuals, people who have, who have a life, it's just eroded. Whatever desire that you allow to roost in your heart that comes and takes control, that's, that's idolatry, but it doesn't lead you to life. It actually leads you uh, to a form of death. It says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served they pursued, they desired after created things rather than the creator who is to be ever forever praised. So it's, it's important for us to actually pay attention to this because there is no way to have a life with God if there's idolatry in our hearts. There's no way to know him, love him, experience him, move toward him if there is a movement toward another. If you break the first commandment, there is no way to be righteous. There's no way to be with God. This is where we begin to say, okay, idolatry is not just for other peoples of other countries and cultures. This is actually something for important for us. And if you grew up in church, you'll overheard it. And you're like, oh, another sermon on idolatry. But actually, it's important for us to realize. We have to pay attention to this. All of our good can get corrupted because we're doing good for other reasons. 
for power, for acceptance, for control. And we'll find ourselves, like the Apostle Paul, or like Saul, so righteous and become an enemy of God. So how do you begin to tell if your heart is moving toward a path of idolatry? If something good okay, becomes an idol, how do you begin to track your own heart? This is really important. Um, I'm going to give you two things and then four, uh, four questions that, that uh, Tim Keller gives us. First and foremost, pay attention to your desires. There's got to be a self-honesty. Yeah. If you're in a relationship and you're married and you're really frustrated with your spouse and there is this person that you keep thinking about because that person is much different, they're nicer, whether it's physically or emotionally. Most, uh, you'd be surprised how many adulterous Affairs happen not because of a physical attraction, but because of emotional support that you get. It tells you it's, not, it's something that's happening inside. You pay attention to your desires. You pay attention to them. And you pay attention to your loyalties. Once your loyalty is being pulled away from God because of this thing, which is so attractive to you, which is not a bad thing, but in fact, now it steps on God and Him being first, that's when on your path toward idolatry. Tim Keller gives us four questions, because this is really important. You cannot deal with idolatry if you can't name it, if you can't identify it. If a doctor, you come into a doctor and they're like, doctor, I'm feeling so sick, what does he ask you for? Give me your symptoms, how do you feel? When did this start, what's going on? He does tests so he can name the very problem you have. He can give you a diagnosis. You cannot have a correct prognosis if you don't have a right diagnosis. If you go in, like many people do, and you're like, I'm not feeling very well, and somebody just shoves antibiotics in your face, actually, that's not helping, because it could be something else. It's important for us, with God's help, to identify where might our specific path and temptation toward idolatry be. These questions are tough, by the way. I ask these to myself, I'm like, ooh, these are, these are tough. This is Tim Keller saying, one of the most profound ways to start Naming where your idols are is ask yourself the question, what is your greatest nightmare? What is your greatest nightmare? What do you worry about? What keeps you up at night? What if this happened or if this was taken away from you would remove the very desire to live? Would remove the very desire to love God and serve Him? I've got to be honest, this is not a... This is not a um, this is not, you know, ideological question for me. It's a, it's, a very, it's a very practical one these days. Going forward, even, what do I worry about the most? That's right at the crosshairs of where your idolatry can be. Second, what do I rely on or comfort myself with when things go badly or become difficult? Okay? So, you have a really bad day, what are you aching to do, to go, to feel? And how are you going to get that? Yeah. Yeah. These are all places where we're allowed, by the way, and called to experience in Christ. When we have this fear, God is supposed to come and we allow him to just give us his perfect peace because he's in control. When we have this pain and frustration and we need comfort, we're called to go to him and find him meeting us, even through these things, but not apart from him. Where do you go to get comfort? Where do you rely on to get comfort? What makes you feel the most, this is the third, self-worth? 
What are you the proudest of? It's a good thing to be like, I know yourself and be proud of what you're able to do, what you have, right? But once that becomes something that you constantly look to and think about, okay, you gotta track your heart and your mind and your thoughts. What is the thing that gives you self-worth? And here's the flip side. What destroys your self-worth that you just don't want to deal with? That might be where your idol is. And last question here. What do I really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? Okay. This is, really, this is where it gets a little tricky because we can, we, can, we can say things and think things on the outside, but if we track our hearts, often, no matter what the circumstances, it becomes the driver. This, this, is, this will make me happy. So, you know, when I, when I was going to go into ministry and uh, pulling away from a path of medicine, I told my parents, and my parents were very, very disappointed with me. They were, they were really, and I think part of it was they had expectations, but also, was, and I asked them, I was like, why don't you want me to go into ministry? It was like, we don't want you to suffer. In fact, pastors, they suffer all the time. You know, they're, they're not respected. They don't, they don't get, they have to, they live a life of poverty. They're persecuted. That's what they saw. They're like, we did not plan that for you. We did not, you know, sacrifice all this just so that you could suffer. That was, that was their love and their care, you know? But finally they came around and said, okay, if God's calling you, you can be a pastor. But the second line always gets me. They were like, but if you're going to be a pastor, you have to have to be a pastor of the biggest church. <laughs> I was like thinking to myself, hmm, <laughs> I wonder what, what's, what's, what's in that expectation? Oh, if you're not going to be a doctor, then you're going to be a pastor, then you better be a successful pastor, right? It's so easy for us to look at somebody else's idol. But these questions have to be asked to ourselves. What's in there? that God wants to address, like a doctor, a cancer of the heart, that he wants to begin to remove and to bring us into his health. Here's more that helps us think through these things. And, he, he, and uh, Tim Keller walks through four specific temptations, idols that if we seek have specific consequences and markers. So if you seek power, your nightmare is going to be humiliation. Okay. Interesting, isn't it? You can't stand being humiliated in front of others. That's your waking nightmare. But could it be that your, your path is toward power? And if, you are, if you're seeking power as a way of giving you security and significance, others around you can't help but feel used. Okay? And your emotional problem as a marker will be anger. Yeah. If approval is your kind of you know, is the thing that you seek, then your humiliation is going to be rejection. You can't stand for somebody to say no to you or turn their back on you or cut off a relationship with you or think less of you. Now, if you're always wanting approval and proof, that's what gives you self-worth, that's what gives you comfort, guess what? The people around you are going to feel really smothered. Yeah. In the name of love, you're doing all of this. But you can tell your relationships are careening this way. Your emotional problem, as Tim Keller would describe it, is, is cowardice. Okay? Your child is, is dabbling with, with drugs and you can't speak against it because you don't have the, co the courage to do so if they begin to reject you for it. Okay? Comfort is actually can be a form of uh, a, an idol that we begin to pursue. Then your nightmare is stress and demands. The idea of having to do all of this is just, you know, 
drives you crazy. And if that's the case, if your comfort is what drives you, the people around you feel neglected. Because when they need comfort, you need comfort. And your comfort always takes precedence. And the emotional problem is boredom. Yeah. Control. And if that's the thing that you're seeking, uncertainty is your nightmare. Others around you, because you're so control-oriented, has to have everything work your way, what do they feel? They feel condemned. Because they can't ever live in that system perfectly. Because often control freaks, they're controlling shifts over time even. And lastly, your emotional problem then is worry. These are just kind of markers to help us understand. You might not have these four or any of these four. It might be something different. But do you see how it's the sin underneath the sin? You don't lie just because. You lie because in your heart, you're looking for something. You don't trust that God can give it to you. Okay? Because in your heart, you're not, you're not moving toward him. He's not first. And so God will call us in a relationship with him to, this has to be dealt with. It has to be displaced. It has to be replaced. If we were started off with knowing God and having a relationship with him, and all of a sudden we exchange that for something created, then guess what? By the grace of God, by the Spirit, another exchange happens where our desires and our passions don't run amok and go all the way where it wants to go and lead us to places where change. Instead, this is what Tim Keller says, if you really want change, if you really want this life with God, Jesus Christ must become your overmastering positive passion. The meals that you have, you don't just pray because that's what you're supposed to do, but you realize this is a gift of God. Okay? The life that you have, the goals that you have, the pains, you don't go to and just medicate. You go to Christ. The things that move you, that inspire you, that drive you are no longer just in your culture, but actually it's in your relationship and through your relationship with Christ. He becomes your overmastering positive passion. And so in order to displace this, there's a three steps that he gives us. These are all in our grace group materials, by the way. Is number one, you have to name it, and we talked about that. You gotta renounce and repent from it, saying, I can't keep living this way, can't give, keep having this life where this desire pulls me this way, and at the same time, look and seek after God. One or the other is going to rule. Um, there's no room for both. You begin to choose and say, God, I hear what, what, what this desire is pulling me toward and the, and the promises, but I don't trust them. I'm going to trust you for that. That pain, that need, that longing, I'm going to go to you for. And to fill your hearts, not just kick that idol out, but to Fill it with how God brings that to you. If you're constantly longing for approval, guess what? God is so good at coming and convincing you that you don't have to work for it. Already you have this amazing approval from God. It's kind of interesting. I remember, I shared this with my sabbatical, that uh, I was just feeling like, wow, you know, if my parents said, if I'm going to be a pastor, if I'm a pastor of the biggest church, I have to be successful, uh, I must be a failure. And uh, that, that, that was rolling through, not just because of what they, they said, but it was rolling through. My 
my idea of what a successful pastor is not about numbers. It's about how are we living our lives for Christ? And that becomes a really painful thing too because if you, if you feel like your own heart and your own life with God is not on par, is not, you're not growing and other people aren't as a pastor, you feel really, I was really struggling. I was like, God, I'm just useless before you. And he heard my heart. And he said something really interesting. And I, I will never forget this. I will never let this go. He says, son, I'm proud of you. And I'm thinking, what did I do? You know, did, did he, is he paying attention to how hard I'm working here and my sermons and this and that and how much I've grown here and that and this, you know, I memorize my sermons now. I don't, I don't, I don't do is, is he seeing that? Is he seeing that? And he says, I'm proud of you because you know me. I'm like, what? Did I hear right? Did I hear right? How is that making you, me, you know, making me proud of, making me worth pride? It was like, I felt like I didn't have to do all this work because all of this life done toward God was toward, I know who he is. I've grown to trust him by his grace. The approval is not in the numbers. The approval is not in how even the, the metrics of how spiritually revived our community is. The approval actually is in, I know him. He knows me. Some of this has to begin to change deep inside our hearts. Some of the deeply rooted idols that we just didn't even realize we're operating out of. But when God gets a hold of us, guess what? Some of these things are identified. It gives us very the courage to say, I don't want to live this way anymore, through others even. And through that grace, we begin to be open to and operate out of this overmastering positive passion for Christ, where God is more important than anything. And it's not, you have to force it. Over time, your, your spiritual taste buds begin to change. It's the gospel itself that begins to work in us. I'm going to have you bow your heads with me. And I'm going to call you. Whether you've not been much in church in your life, or you've grown up in church, call you to realize that our hearts are like idol factories. It's, slippery, it's more slippery here. It's not as easy to tell. But in our sinning, there's a sin beneath the sin. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the love of Father, Son, and Spirit, the communion, the connection, all of his promise and presence. We've exchanged all of that because we didn't believe in the gospel for power, for approval, for comfort, control, any number of things, fame, success. It looks like life but it becomes the very chains by which you're dragged. And if you're feeling that, you gotta know that Jesus went to the cross to free us. Not just give us a ticket to heaven, but to free us from the inside out. To plant his Holy Spirit deeper than all of those desires. To be a wellspring from which those all Inordinate desires are pushed out. 
Maybe you need to hear again how much he loves you, how much cost he paid to change you from the inside out, that his spirit is helping you name idols, the very things that must squash the life out of you. Because he loves you, not only will he help you name them, the spirit of God will help you turn away from them. Show you that that's all lie. They cannot give you life. Fill you with the life and the love of God. Begin to train your heart and your mind to rejoice, to find Him, to seek Him. And if that's where you are, you, you, God is pointing, pointing some at some place, something, some movement of your heart. It's not because he is trying to bring wrath upon you. He's trying to free you. Would you respond? If you would ask those questions in reflection, what's your nightmare? What do you worry about? What gives you self-worth? What are you proud about? What do you run to for comfort? As you ask some of these questions, take some time to respond to God in his love. And it's truth. Let's pray.